0: My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Cause that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy.
1: this was your war
0: yes and the good guys won nobody won not true mandrake's finished he'll never be confirmed to the federal court i'll become skull chairman you'll be exonerated and help me lead the new generation of skulls into the future you know someone i loved once told me that if it's secret and elite it can't be good he was right you used me no, Luke, I helped you, taught you how to make the world work for you, for us. Do you truly believe you can walk away from this, all we've given you, and someday when I call on you for a favor, will you be able to deny me? And if you deny me, will it jeopardize the life
1: you've built for your wife and your family? I don't know if you can live with those doubts, Luke. Watch me. Well done. Are you ready to be reborn?
0: Who is this? Payphone. Outside ad building, 40 seconds.
1: Right. which ones were jfk talking about when he, in his speech was it uh was it the freemasons i don't know was it something deeper we're gonna be talking skull and bones tonight all kinds of cool stuff uh but there is other societies here's eight series societies by the way that you never heard of Have you ever heard of these the grand orange lodge the independent order of the odd fellows that's the only one i've ever heard of the Ancient Order of the Foresters, the Ancient Order of the United Workmen, the Patriotic Order Sons of America, the Molly Maguires. Never heard of that one. So, anyways, I figured
0: I'd just jumpstart it with that. What's up, Mark? Hello, thanks for having me back, man. This is uh, a pleasure. I've had, I've heard the uh, Order of Orange before, but a couple of those were new to me as well, and uh, yeah. Skull and Bones, hoping I can shed some light on uh, this group, and if anything, you know why I got involved with podcasting altogether. Because I think, in a sort of uh, collective consciousness way, there might be a connection. Yeah, you think so?
1: I think. You know, so. I don't know much about Skull and Bones. The only thing I know about it is from uh, the, that movie with Matt Damon. That's all. I, that's all I know about it.
0: Okay. And what did you learn from that movie? (laughs) That's it. Do you remember anything in particular that stood out in that movie? Just the fact, just the part in the movie where
1: they had to lay, it was all about trust, right? And the dude had to lay naked on the altar and tell him his deepest secret to trust his brothers with it. You know, and I mean, I've been a member of, uh, and still am a member of a few secret societies, but to me, they're not unlike fraternities, Uh, Even in college, you know, you have your fraternities. And some, I'm going to tell you, I've seen several Freemasonic lodges. Some of them do it the right way. And then others, like, it's almost like a frat boy thing. It's where they take you through a bunch of crazy stuff and rattle you and paddle you and all kinds of weird things. So, you know, uh, secret societies are what they are. They're secret, but it doesn't, like, I haven't, To be honest with you, the ones that I've been involved with, I'm not entirely too impressed with anything super crazy or super conspiratorial. Um, I mean, the Golden Dawn's really cool, but it's really not super conspiratorial. But, like I said, I don't know much about the Skull and Bones. What do you know about the Skull and Bones?
0: I know a lot. I mean, I can give people uh, a rundown before we get into my personal story and how I came to understand all this stuff in a... Pretty intimate way. Uh, Skull and Bones, also known as the Brotherhood of Death or the Order 322, they're an undergraduate secret student society at Yale University, one of, uh, one of many. Uh, some of the other notable ones are Scrolling Key. There's a uh, Wolf's Head Lodge that was Masonic at one point and now they no longer exist. And a couple of other really interesting groups and To your point, they do kind of function like fraternities uh, more than anything, but this isn't anything I'm sure people hadn't heard before, but John Kerry, George W. Bush, famously both members of the same graduating class of Skull and Bones and then ran against each other uh, in that presidential election. I think that raised a lot of eyebrows, and that movie you're talking about came out maybe within the decade previous, I don't know if it came out in sync with that, but there's definitely a lot of lore, you know, locally, there's been a couple of newspaper reporters and later on um, journalists who have attempted to break in to the toe uh, to their sort of headquarters, the skull and bones headquarters, which is located on high street in new Haven, Connecticut, right in the center of, yale's campus and you know people often talk about them having a sort of nepotistic influence on politics old money easter east coast establishment type families filtering their you know best and brightest through groups like this and it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll go on to, you know, reign over a you know, group of people or something. But oftentimes we find that secret societies are used to vet people and filter out those who may cause these secret groups problems in the long run. You know, especially when it comes to keeping that oath of secrecy, they want to make sure that they can trust you. But it all stems from 1832. That's when uh, when they are founded. And that number, Order 322, comes from that year, 1832. And that second two, following the first two, denotes the fact that Skull and Bones was the second chapter. So there was a earlier, previous chapter that took place in Germany. So for those who... studying secret societies they might be hearing alarm bells in their head because germany is a hotbed for secret societies namely the illuminati uh, and many others yeah well you
1: know according to uh, wikipedia which we have no idea how accurate that is by the way most of the skull and bone members uh especially the largest order of skull and bones they ended up in office let's just say in office right? Um, were from the 1960s and the 1980s. They had like, it just, all right, so from like the 40s all the way to the 80s, it was big, and then it started kind of dampering off, and right now, there's not been any updated members as far as 1990s to the the present, but for sure, there was some stuff, I guarantee you, there was some backdoor stuff going down. I mean, and when Big Bush was in, George W., little
0: little w undoubtedly yeah. yeah well i mean they go all the way back to as influential people as taft you know former presidents of that day uh, and the russell trust association but yeah i think that given the other businesses that are very central in new haven it's pretty obvious to see where skull and blo- skull and bones influences lie uh Big pharmaceutical companies have a very big stake in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, Obviously, Yale's University is pretty famous for their hospital and their nursing program and their medical program. Uh, But there's also some very big banking groups that are in Connecticut and uh, insurance as well. So there's definitely some tangential evidence that might suggest what exactly these guys, you know, get... uh, basically uh you know a red carpet rolled in front of them and they walk into one of these jobs and one of these prominent offices and you know their role may not be as in-depth as somebody like a james bond type who's going and doing crazy stuff and blowing up cars but they form a certain alliance that's crucial in order to pull off these widespread sort of um We'll call it agendas. You know, it's much easier to talk about this now post-plandemic or amidst the plandemic because people have a pretty good idea of what this sort of thing looks like clearer than ever before. Uh, In the past, we had maybe false flags, uh, acts of war and things like that to point at, But now it's pretty clear uh, when you look at the association between Skull and Bones and Yale's medical program that there might be some trickery, we'll say, going on there. Uh, But, you know, I'm no expert. But, yeah, they have uh, 15 students who get tapped into Skull and Bones every year. So the class numbers, uh, or at least the uh, alumni numbers, are pretty low, you know, considering the amount of students that go to Yale every year. But that just highlights how elite this process is and what they're really doing is filtering out the best and the brightest of these elite families and figuring out, I think, who's the most sociopathic, who has these narcissistic qualities, these sociopathic qualities that they can take advantage of in power positions. Then those people possibly get floated to the top. Might also be that folks like George Walker Bush, uh, you know, most recent president, In his case, I think he was just a patsy, uh, a, you know, a willing idiot of sorts. Um, So I don't think that we can point at skull and bones and say, oh, they're definitely doing this. But when you look at the association between the Russell Trust Company and the drug trafficking opium smuggling of the day, and then now the opioid crisis and the absolutely, uh, ridiculous use of some of these, we'll call them poisons, but they build them as medicines, uh, within the hospital system. Right. So I think skull and bones definitely fits into that somehow. I mean, the brotherhood of death should, uh, shouldn't really be taken lightly. And they're very famous for something called crooking, which, manifests itself more recently in things like stealing license plates, stealing flags, things like that. Uh, But in the past, Prescott Bush, grandfather of the most recent Bush president, uh, is allegedly accused or was accused allegedly of taking Geronimo's skull from his grave near Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and, you know, exhuming it and taking it back to here in Connecticut and placing it in the Skull and Bones tomb. They have a couple of other notable skulls, and, uh, you know, they're they're not a secret society in the sense that, like, the Council of Orange or whatever that was that you mentioned and all the others, those are pretty obscure compared to Skull and Bones. But within the circles that this group operates, it's pretty easy to see how wide that gap can, you know, be manipulated so that the average person really has no even grasp of what these people could possibly be doing uh, behind their gilded towers. But yeah, I think Skull and Bones all the way in the past and up until now have been at the center of a lot of corruption particularly within the realm of drug trafficking. Um but yeah, I mean, do you think George uh George Walker
1: Bush, you know, Big Bush was uh he graduated in 1948.
0: Do you think he was the biggest one of our time? I, I in think in terms he was, of most I think influential he was one of the biggest one. In terms of most influential I mean, yeah, absolutely yeah. with you w- when you look at JFK You look at his involvement with that, you know, he famously doesn't remember where he was that day, even though uh, the record shows he was in Texas, maybe even in Dallas. Um, And then obviously all of the scandals that came uh, preceding that. I mean, we have Nixon, we have all these things while he's, you know, involved with the CIA, whether, uh, you know, on the outward face or behind closed doors, uh, even, you know, Being an ambassador to China at one point, I mean, that should tell you everything you need to know as far as the opium connection. I mean, the Russell Trust, that was basically where the opium wars um, took place with what the Russell Trust had their hands in back in those days before China became, you know, communist China. And, you know, for folks who've never heard of the opium wars... China is not too happy about that. I mean, people in their country were addicted to this drug like never before. And I think that was a, I'm definitely not the person who's written a book on it, but there are books written on how they used opium in that war to destroy the population. And I see that happening, not just in my city, not where I was born, but close enough, other cities on the east coast where drugs have ravaged and ruined the community and ruined the average person's potential to uh, make it to that level that the elites you know are privileged to be at and you know i believe in law of attraction and manifestation so i never want to be in the position where I, i go and say just because someone's rich that makes them evil or wealth equates to evil But it definitely feels like uh, a small group of people make all the decisions in this world, and they're certainly not uh, taking responsibility for, you know, the just atrocities that are pretty mundane. We don't know like
1: the corporation
0: stuff, too.
1: We forget about that as well. Like Frederick Wallace Smith, who graduated in '66, founded FedEx, which is massive, Mm. right? And then Stephen Schwartzman. This guy was uh prominent under the George W. Bush's administration. Founder and then Blackstone. the SEC filings for Blackstone's IPO, the one he had the Blackstone group went public in 07. But uh, this guy's got a net worth of around seven point seven billion dollars. And then uh it just if you look at it, you can definitely connect the dots, right? Like Dana Milbank, right? Um This stuff is, uh, he writes the, he writes for the post. So they're in the media. They're in the the biggest, you know, like transportation companies there are. They're also in, they're also prevalent in, uh, you know, Congress and stuff too. So, and they're all buddies, man, but people worry about Freemasons and I could understand why, like if I wonder if you really looked at it, just how many of these guys were in secret
0: societies. Well, and you have to or, remember that... way to look at that stat, I wonder. You have to remember that, I mean, 1832 was, if I'm not mistaken, fresh off of the big anti-Mason movement. So there was a huge push in at least the United States and probably in Europe as well to eliminate any Masonic influence from government. And that's, in my opinion, when... Uh, the folks who were sort of the puppeteers behind those groups simply just changed the names of their groups and recruited less people. And then we see groups like Skull and Bones. Like I said, the Wolf's Head Lodge, which is another uh, student society at Yale, used to be ostensibly Masonic, and it was closed because of that Masonic panic um, and I don't know if they existed concurrent to each other, but I know that Skull and Bones obviously still exist today and may or may not have preceded Wolf's Lodge. I could be wrong. I think Wolf's Lodge is the oldest student society at Yale. I'm not reading this off of anything. I'm just going straight off of my memory, and I've been inside of the Wolf's Head Lodge, and maybe after the break, which I'm sure is coming up real soon, uh, we could start to get into my my story Um, but yeah, I've been inside a lot of these buildings inside of Yale and it's an impressive campus. I mean, there's definitely some beautiful architecture, but from my knowledge, it was all, uh, reproduced very recently to look that way. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of strange anomalies when you just walk around. I mean, from the courthouse to the the graveyard, to the fact that the green, center of town is built on a you guessed it folks an ancient native american burial ground because why wouldn't they do that and then there's three churches and a major area where homeless people sleep so yeah it's uh it it feels like a uh you know they're sort of cooking a recipe of chaos uh when it comes to these sort of ancient land forces i was just talking to penny royals uh nathan isaac and he goes into a lot of the strange stuff down in kentucky which uh not too far from where you're from i don't know if you ever made your way out to kentucky but there's a lot yeah
1: dude i got pulled over in
0: kentucky and i had to go to i had to go to court back
1: in kentucky when i was living in new york driving back back and forth so yeah i've been through
0: there oh damn But yeah, I mean, my story really just starts with being a stoner, not sure what to do with my college career. You know, I was starting off in community college, not really sure what I was going to make of myself. Um, I knew what I was interested in, but I didn't realize (laughs) at this time in my life, you know, back then that podcasting was a thing or that I could, you know, get interested in these subjects and, and it would you know, become of something that, you know, would sustain me somehow, you know, it was always like, oh no, you got to go work for the power company. You got to go work for the water company. You got to figure out some kind of blue collar job to make it happen. And it just, that wasn't my thing. And I knew that I just didn't know where I was going to go. And I was a Chinese food delivery guy and I was, uh, well, sorry, I'm going a little ahead of myself. So I was, I was a freshman in college and I would in between classes go to the park, the same park that I just mentioned used to be an Indian burial ground and, uh, read books and smoke joints. And I happened to be wearing a sitting bowl t-shirt one day cause I just picked it up somewhere and liked wearing it. And this gentleman walks by me, short squat, dark skinned dude, uh, native American dude, dark black hair, kind of comes over to me and asks me about my shirt, asked me what I was smoking, and that kicked What's off smoking man, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that kicked off a a pretty interesting series of uh, conversations that took place over the course of a, a couple of years. But yeah, his name was Amos Daly, and after I got to know him pretty well, basically, you know, he moved to New Haven. After leaving Arizona out of prison, I never found out what he did to get arrested, but it, I assumed it wasn't violent just because of his character and how he treated me. Uh, but know, yeah, I never found that out. But it basically, we're getting into a story, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we're getting d- into a story here. It, cool. It, uh, because I got a good feeling this is going to be a good story. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because you were like, I remember for the show, you're like, Hey, you ever heard me tell you a story about my friend Amos? I was like, No, I haven't. We're talking about secret societies tonight. You're live on Lighting the Void as well. Uh, gotta love living in Florida. It's getting a little crazy here, though, with the uh, bikers and stuff. But I, I am proud to say, uh, being a Floridian, that Florida becomes the first state to recommend against. Vaccinating children. I wish I had an applause button. I'd definitely nail that one, but it's uh, oh, good. I'm trying to get everybody down here to Florida. I try to get Mark to come down here to Florida, our guest, but he said, not until they legalize weed, and then you'll be here, right? And that when you said he was coming?
0: Yeah, they are doing that soon, apparently. So who knows? I think I'll be there sooner than later if they get that done this year. I mean, there's only, we, we have. Bike week here, right?
1: And I've never seen this many motorcycles in my life, and I love motorcycles. So, but to be clear, only a couple of violent crimes, but other than that, everything's been cool. You to, know,
0: to be clear, there's nothing stopping me from visiting. It's just moving down there. I would have to wait until weed's legal. How isn't it sad though? That you know, I want to get
1: into your story, but that's it's really sad that w- there's one state that's like, okay, we we recommend against vaccinating children. Like, to me, that's a real problem. There should be, like, 10 states doing that, not just Florida. Right. Texas,
0: at least. Somebody else, man. I thought South you know? Dakota just was like, we don't recommend it for anybody, let alone children. But, yeah, no, I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of people that are hesitating to come out and be the first one. Florida seems to never be shy of being the first.
1: <laughs> yeah, and even the CDC said, you know, that – Children face, like, uh, they make up, like, less than 0.1% of virus deaths. So, like, why are we pushing this when we don't know what it's going to do to their life, you know? Like, we've already, it's just, it's stupid. But anyways. Right. So, you are telling your story about Amos, right? Didn't I say his name right? Amos?
0: Mm-hmm. All
1: right. So, tell us what happened. The skull and bone story.
0: Right. So, to paint the scene for you, um, you know. 19 years old, fresh out of high school, just getting into college, not sure what to do with myself and really not <laughs> equipped to even be in college financially speaking. So I really just part of me was like, you know, I, I don't know why I'm here, but I did like a couple of my classes, communication and anthropology, funny enough, seem to fit well into what I do now. But, you know, I spent a lot of time just hanging out in that park and found a lot of reprieve from the mundanity of my classes. College really felt like, uh, high school 2.0 just because of that particular, particular college. Um, so yeah, I really relished in spending time at this park and that's where I ran into Amos and I was reading books like, you know, way of the shaman by Michael Harner and. The Secret History of the World by Mark Booth and a lot of interesting stuff that was already opening my eyes to a lot of these things. Uh, Neville Drury is another author that I was reading at the time. And I'm just, you know, kicking back, smoking a joint like I usually do. And this guy walks up to me, his name's Amos, introduces himself and asks me about my shirt. And I'm like, well, you know, I like to read about this stuff. And at the time, you know, I really was interested in talking to these people because part of me always felt like, uh, like I'm open to everything, you know. I don't have any stigmas, you know, because I had grown up in this like very judgmental worldview. You know, nothing against my family, but hey, it's the name of my show. It, it just had like a very, very narrow-minded worldview. It seemed at my uh, at that point in my life. So I was very eager to like explore and meet new people that I had been sheltered from. So I just had no uh, thoughts about, you know, speaking to homeless people. I was like, all right, cool. Cause in this city, they freaking you know, come right up to you and ask you for a dollar, freaking tell you a rhyme, tell you a story, anything they can do to get a buck from you. So you, you end up talking to a lot of people and that puts you on guard, but something about Amos really like let me off guard. And, uh, you know, we ended up smoking and he told me that he was from Arizona. And like I was alluding to before, he had recently gotten out of prison and, uh, he told me, you know, because of the shirt I was wearing, he, he felt like he was more comfortable. He could tell me more of this. And, uh, he told me, you know, Hey, I, I, I moved out to new Haven because, uh, you know, and he's asking me. At this point, we probably already exchanged conspiracy theories that we believed in. So he's saying, you know, skull and bones back in the 1800s. And he breaks down this story I told you before about how Prescott Bush stole Geronimo's skull from his grave in Oklahoma. Geronimo was this brave warrior. Nobody could kill him. He was, uh, you know, captured and died in, in captivity. And, you know, he was such a legendary figure, infamous. That uh, in the military, they'd have these guys who were just cowards and, you know, didn't, <laughs> you didn't, they weren't ready yet. They were young, not again, nothing against military people, but they were just, so in order to like get in their head, they would tell them scream Geronimo because that'll give you power and you can, you can, uh you know, tap into that energy. That was this fierce warrior Geronimo. So, at the time that Prescott Bush was in the military, he would have known about Geronimo's legend, you know, even though uh, Geronimo had probably been dead for a couple decades by the time, maybe even more, that Prescott Bush gr- dug up his grave. So they took this skull and bone set of bones for whatever reason uh, to New Haven, Connecticut, where they allegedly have Martin Van Buren and many other famous people even some i've recently learned native americans that were very prominent in this part of the world not just geronimo who is known for his you know battles out west so anyways amos kind of tells me the story and i'm sitting there like jaw drop because you know this is everything that i had been reading about online and things that I had been pretty skeptical to dive into fully, but here was somebody in person saying, no, this shit really happened. And what he would yeah. do, what he would do. Cause you know, like I said, he got out of prison, he was homeless, but he wasn't like, uh, like the rest of the homeless guys. He didn't put me on guard. He was definitely just an, an interesting guy. And we walked over to the tomb and, you know, told me some stuff and, he told me about how when he got to New Haven, he wasn't sure quite what to do because, you know, he'd never been here before. He came from the desert. He lived most of his life like kind of on a ranch, ranching, and, and then got you know caught up with the wrong people and arrested. So he was just following spirit, basically. And I, I wasn't really spiritual. I was smoking weed, trying to understand that stuff, but I wasn't really that spiritual at that time. I was kind of coming out of atheism. So he's like, you know, when I came here, I didn't know what to do. So every day I would come to this place right here and we were standing in front of the tomb, skull and bones, his little headquarters. He like, I'd come here and I would scream Geronimo's name at the top of my lungs. And he's like, eventually I realized that he needed me here. And, huh. and he's in a way praying. For him and connecting with him. Because without knowing his lineage explicitly, you know, in a matter of words, he told me he's an ancestor of Geronimo, you know, through tribal relations and whatnot. So he felt connected spiritually to Geronimo's skull and really felt like standing at that tomb that he could sense his ancestor there. And he would scream his name at the top of his lungs. And I'm like, you know, I'm like 19 years old, so I, I'm full of full of cum and dumb and you know, ready to fight. And so I'm like, dude, we should just break down the door and get in there and steal it. Like who what do we got to lose, man? Like let's just get this let's get the skull back. What are we waiting for? And he <laughs> You're gonna go on a, a an adventure. Huh? I was go on a, I was yeah. like, let's do it, let's do it, you know? And he's like, Oh man, he's like He's like, listen, you see that guy over there? You see that guy over there? He's like, these guys, these homeless guys, they're not doing anything. He's like, if if I wanted to, he's like, I could ask him to go buy me a soda. I could ask him to go walk down the street and check things out for me. He's like, if we needed to, he's like, I could get a whole gang of these guys together and we could bust that door down. He's like, that's not going to happen. He's like, as a matter of fact, that would be the opposite of what I want to happen. And then he told me this story about how In the 1950s or 60s, a group of Native Americans from out west, I don't know exactly the name of their tribe or their group, forgive me, um, but they came to Skull and Bones in Yale University and they said, Hey, you know, we know what happened. We know the story. We have the evidence. We see the grave is empty and we want our ancestors' remains back. You know, what you've done is a crime, and it, it breaks treaties, and and it's unspeakable. And you know what Yale had the audacity to do? Yale said, okay, we're, we're very sorry. We'll give it back to you. And they go into their crypt, these, you know, big metal steel locks on some big frickin' iron door. Who knows where it leads in these tunnels underneath New Haven, Connecticut. And they pull a skull out but it wasn't geronimo's skull it was the skull of a child and these sickos at, at yale university thought that they could promulgate this skull uh and fool this group of people and they they weren't fooled at all they were disgusted and insulted how did the, how, how, when you knew where they got it from right like I I wouldn't put it back pa- I mean Yale University was an uh, innovator, I'm sure, in the art of dissection. So they have plenty of bodies. <laughs> you know, like they, they're very That's old. So creepy, man. I would have been like, yeah. uh Yeah. Somebody might need to go to jail here. I don't know. Well it, it is it is a rumor that sometimes when they're in need of a, a cadaver for some of their university experiments they open up those tunnel doors and pull some homeless people in through the tunnels and disappear some of the local homeless people for those experiments i've heard i've heard even from amos that uh there was a homeless guy that was abducted and they cut his heart out and used it in a ceremony on top of one of the buildings in New Haven, connecticut if you're familiar with the city you'll know the building it's the only one with a pyramid shaped roof uh, so go figure. That
1: is really weird, man. So, I mean, I know homeless people are considered homeless people. I'm sure there's been a lot of experimentation on them, but that's, that's something entirely different, man. Right. You know, Well, and, and it's people do all kinds of weird things for whatever, you know, I mean, uh, we had a couple up here that was riding their bike, their bicycle. I don't know how long they lived here but they were up visiting bike week and someone just slit their throats, didn't rob them or anything. So I mean, you never know.
0: Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of what I just talked about with Nathan Isaac from the Penny Royal, who I love to, you know, put you in touch with him to talk to him is how the energy in this Penny Royal, Kentucky area is uh, considered a geomagnetic anomaly zone. And it's also one of the highest rates of violence of any area in that uh, in that state, at least. So, yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, there's a case to be made that certain areas, certain landscapes, even certain events can be manipulated to induce this kind of chaos energy, but that's a totally different discussion. Um, so, you know, the Native Americans who approached Yale were insulted with this child skull, and uh, I don't think they were ever you know, fully given anything, you know, after that they left and and nothing ever came back. But what's really interesting is only a block away is the, from, from Yale's skull and bone tomb, uh, is the Native American relations building or however they label it. So I just think in a sort of toponomical landscape way, there's something going on there where they're sort of mirroring the two places in that way. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, at that age, I was very, very skeptical, but also very open-minded. You know, I try to stay balanced when I'm entertaining these things. And, you know, originally I was so excited learning all this stuff from him that I made the mistake of going and telling my mom and dad and grandparents everything I'd learned and that just really created the uh, <laughs> the reputation that I now, you know, boldly, uh, you know, what is it? What's the term I'm looking for? Sorry, it's late here, folks. Uh, I, I own it. I own the term. You my family thinks yeah. I'm crazy, you know, but it all really started then. And, uh, you know, I started getting into these subjects in a really deep way because I saw how these things started to connect to my life. And uh, I can get into that. Were you
1: ready back then, though? Like, if you would have say, I mean, think about, do you, you remember when uh, Alex Jones walked up in that Bohemian Grove thing, right? Like, I always wanted to do that, to kind of mm. bust up on some crazy ritual or something. You well, know? and it's and funny. It sounds to- weird coming from a ceremonial magician, but, dude, we don't do crazy stuff like that, really. I mean, the craziest ritual I was ever involved in, it had a mixture of... Um, people that studied all kinds of different magic and they were around a fire and there was a guy wearing a Baphomet mask and that was about it. That's it. Right.
0: But no like human body parts or anything, Mm
1: -hmm. you know?
0: Well, this goes back, you know, allegedly to John the Baptist, uh, had the, you know, decapitated head that was used by the, uh, the Knights Templar, you know? And, um, And there's a lot of connections that can be made there. I'm not the expert on that. They also allegedly have Pancho Villa's head in the Skull and Bones Temple. But, uh, you know, there have been people to break into the Skull and Bones Temple. In 1873, um, Skull and Bones had taken over Yale University's finances, and a very uh, bold student wanted to expose this and staged a break-in. And when you're... When you're initiated in the Skull and Bones, you consider everyone else either Gentiles or Vandals, right? So this group labeled themselves the Vandals, and they went and they broke in and they described the insides of the Skull and Bones tomb, which I have recorded in this book here, uh, a really awesome book for anyone who, who's interested in the subject, Anthony C. Sutton, uh, who is passed away now, but really I think if you find anything on skull and bones, there's a strong likelihood that the information comes from this book, uh, because he did do a lot of like groundbreaking, uh, piecing together of, uh, you know, resources, uh, documents. And he even has a full alumni list going from, I think the 1800s all the way up to like 19, I think even into the two thousands. Cause this is a, A reprinted edition Uh, but yeah so if I could find the right part maybe we could describe the insides but that one thing that does come to mind is the uh, walls are are covered in black and red velvet which uh, they're definitely not sparing any expenses on the uh, decor so yeah they have some schematics of the the building drawn out in here Um, there's two floors and there are iron bars on the windows, strong, huge iron doors, the kind that the Tartaria researchers often say were made for Nephilim. But uh, sadly, the Skull and Bones tomb is not that old. Um, but, yeah, so it's the Order of the Filing Claw that broke in to Skull and Bones in uh, 1876. Wow, so, okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, people should just get this book. I don't want to read from the book. I'd rather go into my own personal experiences, but... uh,
1: Did you have any crazy, like, massive synchronicities while you were going through all studying all this stuff, though? Absolutely. Usually that's what happens, right? When you start digging into it, you'll start having, like, massive synchros and stuff.
0: Absolutely. You know, what's funny, some of the synchronicities really only dawned on me when I got involved with having my own podcast, I remember finding a book put together by Chris Milligan, someone who I've interviewed on my show in the earlier episodes, I think episode 19 or something. And uh, yeah, he put together this book on uh, skull and bones. it was kind of like a collection of essays by various authors. One of them being Anthony C Sutton, who uh, actually Chris Milligan helped to republish this book after it had gone out of publishing. And I, was lucky enough to have him on my podcast but his book not this copy a different one um was what woke me up really to this being legitimate before i even met amos which was so funny because i was in the library looking for conspiracy subjects because i'm like you know what let me just see what the library has to offer i find this skull and bones book right so that was the first major synchronicity that kind of open the doorway. So when Amos came around, I kind of was hip to some of these things. And um, I later found a copy of that same book in a bookstore only a block away from Skull and Bones' Tomb. But one of the things that Amos and I did was we smoke weed together, and I was a big pothead back then, still am. And, uh, and just, you know, weed is such a synchronistic thing. But <laughs> another thing that really he taught me about was herbs and their ability to alter your life. And I know, you know, this as someone who is very well versed in the occult that you can use certain herbs as tools to connect you with certain energies is something he he taught me about. And I was you can very- use herbs. You can
1: use everything: herbs, metals, you name it. Everything right. has a correspondence to. it, But
0: so he natural told me- stuff
1: me more the Wiccan, Wicca, witchcraft kind of stuff for sure.
0: Right, and I was familiar with the Wicca stuff. I had Scott Cunningham's book, and there was like a witch store not too far from my house where I would buy crystals. So I was getting into that stuff, but I never really. Uh, Took, I was taking tobacco for granted until I talked to Amos. And uh, I bring that up because I love smoking weed in tobacco. It's really the only way I smoke weed. I don't use bongs or anything else. And what Amos explained to me was that uh, tobacco and cannabis are like a masculine and feminine energy that are blended together. And huh? take it for what you will. I don't know if, uh, you know, this is historically accurate that historical botanists would agree with this, but Amos told me that cannabis was in the new world well before, even though it's considered an old world plant, he said it was in the new world well, well before Europeans came and Native Americans would smoke weed just like I do now to this day uh, inside of tobacco leaves. So I just found that really synchronous because I was just smoking weed like the rest of my degenerate friends, not like out of some interest in shamanism, we were just like rolling up games. Cause that's what the gas station had. So, you know, I'm getting high and I'm hanging out with him and, and we see this red tailed Hawk flying through the sky and they're common in that area because of the tall buildings. You know, they like to make their nests on top of uh tall buildings in sure. cities and catch pigeons and whatnot. But You know, Amos kind of expressed to me that like, well, just like cannabis has this power, so do uh, animals and their spirits are interacting with you in the same way. He was like, me, my spirit animal is a squirrel. And here, like I am as like a 19 year old dude thinking like he's going to tell me his spirit animal is like a panther or like a tiger, like something badass. And he's like, no, my spirit animal is a squirrel. And I'm like, why is that? And he's like, well, when I'm sitting on the bench, squirrels always just come over to me, man. They just feel really comfortable with me. And, you know, they'll kind of avoid other people. But with me, they just want to come up to me. And like, I've even fed them out of my hand. And he's like, it's funny, because where I grew up, we don't have squirrels. He's like, there's no squirrels where I, where I'm from. You know, this guy's from the deserts in Arizona. They don't have squirrels. So to hear that this dude in New Haven, you know, I've seen squirrels hit by cars. I've seen squirrels dead on the road. I never thought of a squirrel as a magical animal. And here, this guy tells me, you know, squirrels is spirit animal and he really uh, connects with it. And that to me was just so like, It was just mind-blowing, because at the time, I kind of associated with, like, a power animal, which is a totally separate thing. Like, you can have an animal that you take power from, like a wolf. uh, In the same way you can take power from a squirrel, it's just you have to understand what that animal is good at. A squirrel can thrive in places where a wolf could never thrive. So there are advantages to uh, all of the animals, and, you know, despite the way they appear. And why I brought up the red-tailed hawk was because it became uh, really a synchronicity lesson for me, and a lesson in intuition. I say that because, you know, as much as I trusted Amos when it was face to face, and like he never wronged me in any way, when I when he wasn't around, which was most of the time, I was just a regular dude, skeptical, you know, and questioning this stuff, and. I remember one time I was meditating in my backyard and and I had a pretty nice backyard at this time in my life. My dad lucked out and got a nice piece of property in this neighborhood where most people didn't have a big backyard. And we happened to have a forest in our backyard. And and I would sit back there and sit in this clearing with the sun on me and just kind of meditate. And I'm holding this selenite crystal, which I actually still own. It's right here. Uh, it's broken now, but I put it back together. Um, and I was just sitting there holding my selenite crystal and meditating and connecting and all that good stuff, woo woo stuff. And uh, for the first time in my life I had what I would call a sort of white out experience. It wasn't a blackout because my vision just wasn't blacked out, it was whited out. And uh, when hold I up, hold on, you gotta tell us about this too, this
1: white out experience. I already went into the all the way into the break. That's all right. Uh, we got to finish this. But you were with a crystal, and you had a whiteout. Tell me about what that is—the whiteout experience that you had.
0: Yes. So, around that time, you know, Amos had been telling me about omens and animals and signs and. You know really not from his own you know motivation it was all just me being curious and relentless and any chance i got to talk to him i would just take that opportunity up so around that time we talked about animals and yeah i was just you know meditating in my backyard because i had nothing better to do that day i guess and uh I have this whiteout experience and that's the best way I can describe it because nothing really happened other than me whiting out at least on the conscious level that I could experience I felt my body kind of being really hot and overheating but I was also sitting in the sun in the middle of this sort of may or something Wait, or did it do
1: it real fast like did it
0: get hot like really quick it was a flash. It was definitely a flash. And when yeah, I Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: I had that happen to me. Go ahead though. Finish your story. No, it's all right. And uh, you know, around that time I'd also been playing around with certain chants too to open up my third eye, or at least that's what these books told me that, that these chants would do. With certain mantras and meditations. So I'd been doing that as well. And I opened my eyes after doing this whiteout and I find floating on the tall grass like it had Just landed there, and I'm talking like where I had walked over to get to this spot. So it was definitely not there when I had walked over a beautiful red tailed hawk feather. Like, you know, I liked collecting feathers even at that point in my life, and I'd never found anything quite like this. And uh, and I just was so kind of flabbergasted that there was such a, a lining up of these two things, you know, whiting out, finding the feather reading about all this shamanism stuff, having a friend who was very much, you know, in depth knowledge of this stuff. And, uh, and I told him, I'm like, Hey man, I found this red tailed hawk feather. And he's like, really? And I had it in my backpack and I showed it to him and he's like, wow. He's like, Hey man, you better put this away. He's like, keep this. He's like, don't lose this. This is, this is a a, a sign, you know, he's like where I'm from these feathers are used to pray to the creator, you know, and, uh, this feather will take your thoughts up to the creator. And I really, you know, with all my heart, I even worry about talking about it (laughs) because that's just the nature of how these things work. But, uh, but no, 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 you know, it it, is, it's something that I take really seriously. And what's funny is he had been sort of, uh, talking about this stuff with a couple different people, not just me at that time. And I wasn't the only person who found a red-tailed hawk feather. And he told me, you know, hey, this is a sign. I uh, I was praying to myself and, or to, you know, for myself and for the creator and what to do, you know, next. And he's like, who to trust? Because he sort of had this instinct that there was somebody in his life at that point who he should Teach this kind of stuff to. And he was like, that red tailed hawk feather was a sign that you were the right person to learn this stuff. That's when he began to tell me about his experiences with a sweat lodge. And, you know, one of my biggest regrets from that time in my life is that I never took him up on his offer to go to a sweat lodge with him. But, you know, he told me about these rites of passage that his family, you know, his group of, his tribe, for lack of a better word, um, passed down to him. Something that he partook in was this sweat lodge ceremony, something that, uh, you know, not many people could stomach the, the pain and the agony of what this rite of passage ritual entails. Uh, it entails, being in a sweat lodge for, you know, a number of days, being left in a wild wilderness remote area on your own, finding your way back after being hung from a (laughs) pole with eagle talons pierced through your chest, literally dangling, you know, suspended in the air by your wounds. And when you free yourself from that and Peyote also makes its way into this process at several points. Forgive me for people who know this ceremony better uh, because I definitely don't have a concise knowledge of it, you know, A to B to C, but uh, it does comprise of this sort of, these sort of points, right? With the eagle talons. I remember the look in his eyes when he told me about this and the way he grabbed the skin on his chest and he grabbed the skin on my chest and pulled it like he would if he was oh. going to stick an eagle talon through it and uh and yeah man and that and that's just something that you can't read in a book you know that like the things that I learned from him were really kind of they've stuck with me to this day but uh yeah on top of that and this is something that really cracked the door open for me being open minded in these realms was he told me that while he was under this sort of peyote, um, for a period of time, he left his physical body through his astral body and went into the ground below the spot on the earth where they were conducting this ceremony. And he met with a feminine reptilian being who shared with him certain information that I don't think that he really went too far in depth on, but you know, it's the same thing that his father, his grandfather, great-grandfather experienced when doing this same rite of passage. And it's this relationship, from what I gathered, that this group of people, this tribe has with this entity that lives in this part of the desert underground. Whether that entity exists in a physical body, you know, that was never really made clear, nor did I ask. I just sort of was like, wow, David Icke was not lying. (laughs) You know, reptilians exist because... You know, this is a guy who, like I said, I trusted. I met with him several times and, you know, I should point out that this is a time when cell phones were, you know, not exactly the most common thing quite yet. I mean, I did have a cell phone, uh, after high school, but in 2012 and 13, like cell phones, they were around, but they weren't the most popular thing. And he definitely didn't have a cell phone as a a homeless person, at least for some time. So it always, it was always kind of like a hit or a miss, whether I would see him or not, which added a sort of mysticism to it. Cause like, you know, some days I would show up to the park and he'd be there and some days I'd show up and, uh, he wouldn't be there. And, you know, eventually he stopped going to the tomb to scream Geronimo's name because every day at noon, he would stand in front of the tomb and, and scream Geronimo's name. And loud too, like vibrating, echoing through the campus, and uh, you know, basically told me like, yeah, I don't need to do that because I've sort of come to peace with that energy. And uh, he's like, my job is done. But uh, he described that's a though, right? Like, yeah, to witness all that. Oh man, for sure. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of things that he taught me about. Like he he walked me through. The campus and pointed out all these symbols that uh, that I'm really excited to be able to give people a tour of when I have this opportunity this month to uh, to do a little tour for free in New Haven. If you live nearby, come on down March 22nd. But yeah, there's so many very interesting symbols that you know. He pointed out he wasn't an expert, but he would show me these things and be like, "Dude, see, this is this is an example. This is an example." Look at what they're pointing at right here. Look at what yeah. you have, you know, look at all the homeless people, look at the way Yale has so much and gives back so little to their immediate surroundings. You know, and this is a this is a city that for the record, you know, comprises of uh, a lot of black people, a lot of Hispanic people, and I'm sure a, a good portion of them get jobs through Yale and that's a benefit to some, but for the most part, Yale is a parasite on the city of New Haven. It's pretty obvious, and I'm, uh, you know, pretty certain that the politicians are strapped with cash, so they don't ever bump up against that topic. But you know, I'm no expert, uh, but it's always been a it's always been a sore spot for me, and uh, I really disliked that sort of. Um, financial economic gap you know growing up on the wrong end of that so to speak not that i wish i was born rich because i I see how that ends up for people but yeah it definitely you know left me wanting to sort of right these wrongs that i saw and um, i hope you
1: know to speak for the rich though i will say that if you find a rich person that isn't focused on materialism like they're not focused on status quo and materialistic, and they're rich, which is, in my life, has been pretty rare. But some of those people are the coolest people you'll ever meet, honestly. Right. But and, and I, I have, I have hard to run across them though. I want, I want to go back to your whiteout experience though. Like you were talking about, you got really hot, and I, I used to do this when I went to the park. Um Back when I was before I started doing all this, I would drive over to a park and listen to Robert Monroe sometimes in the car. And my body would feel like it was on, you know, when you get to a certain relaxed state, it gets pretty intense. But my body would feel like, dude, it was on fire. Maybe it was really close, almost like you're almost in a fire. <laughs> and it would freak me out because I didn't feel myself breathing. I didn't feel my heart beating. It was almost like sleep paralysis, mm. but it was super hot like a hot flash and I would tell people about it and they're like, oh, it's just a hot flash. I am like, man, I've had a hot flash before. Well,
0: what like, Amos, what Amos you know? told me is, is that, that, and you know, this is something I asked him about after I had that experience. He's like, yeah, man, that's what the sweat latch is intended for. When you go through the sweat, you bring on those feelings and you burn away all those impurities for lack of a better word. I'm sure he didn't use that word. Um, that exist in your celestial your astral body now you know like i said amos didn't have a cell phone and uh and we didn't stay in total touch all the time but uh when he did get a cell phone we stayed in pretty good touch and he eventually got a house which was really badass and and not a house of his own but he got a place you know he wasn't homeless anymore and uh And I ended up dropping out of of that college because I was just so disenfranchised with society and with the idea, you know, that uh, my student loans would (laughs) you know be the end of me and there were people in my life at that time who were like oh you can get your student loans forgiven just drop out and do your own thing you can make way more money on your own and they were right honestly I'm really glad I did drop out of my uh that that community college that I was in maybe if I had found a better school it would have worked out differently but I really do not regret that choice at all and um And it's funny because I went and said, you know, I'm just going to fucking pick myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to work and I'm going to figure something out. And I found a, a job as a Chinese food delivery guy because... In between deliveries, I was able to read books, and on my way to deliver the food, I was able to smoke weed. So two of my favorite things, and I was getting paid. How could you not do something like that? So I was delivering Chinese food, and uh, this was in a totally different town, not in New Haven, Connecticut. a different town than that. And a friend from high school comes in. And he's like, hey, man, what are you up to? What have you been doing since high school? Blah, blah, we catch up. And he's like, dude, you got to come by this place that I've been hanging out. He's like, you don't have to be a college student, but it's a really cool fraternity. And uh and you might like to join it. And I'm like, OK, cool. I'll check it out. And I really was hesitant. And I had heard about this place already because my one of my best friends actually was a member and this guy was sort of my friend, but he was the only friend I had who was a conspiracy theorist. So I really liked him. You know, like we weren't close friends, but I really liked him. It's funny enough, he was the second guest on my podcast, uh, episode two, if you want to go back and check out Mikey and his knowledge. But uh, but yeah, so Mikey comes by. He's like, dude, you got to come to this frat. So. I go to this place, and I, I can't use any names because they'll all get mad at me, not that it matters, but we'll call it the Animal House for lack of a better word. And, uh, and it really was like the movie Animal House, I man. It was a wild fraternity that uh, was started by students and not a part of the campus at all, and, and really just through really cr- crazy parties, but safe parties. You know, nothing dumb ever happened at least while the class that I was a part of was there. And, and you um, didn't see any paddlings
1: or any hazing or anything of that nature uh, not right? that I can talk Is of
0: not not that I can talk of on the record, but there were definitely paddles. I just didn't see anybody get paddled, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So yeah. we had all the strappings of your typical frat. But what was interesting was that uh, you know we were. Uh, sort of a fraternity in a town with a very infamous fraternity uh, like Skull and Bones. So naturally, young guys are gonna go and do courageous things and outrageous things. Well, I got into this uh, fraternity, long story short, and uh, it started with like a text message that was like, oh, once you go down the rabbit hole, you can never turn back. You know, funny enough, it landed me here. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting that connected everything together was one of the small parts of the initiation process for this animal house, uh, was standing in front of that exact building that, uh, that Amos showed me kind of like a, Hey, oh. look at, yeah. So I so ended-
1: that's a pretty big synchro, man.
0: And not only that, like- but the, the animal house had stolen a flag from the skull and bones people because um, you know, like I said, the skull and bones guys are known for crooking, right? They'll go and steal license plates. They'll steal all kinds of shit. So one of the sort of bragging rights of a fraternity in new Haven is if you could steal something from skull and bones. And one of our, you know, really, uh, cool sort of, uh, memorabilia is our skull and bones flag that hangs in the living room of this animal house. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's definitely synchronistic and what's funny is as much as that was a part of like the lore of our little group, it was not something that the majority of the brothers were interested in. So even, you know, in similar fashion to my family, my fraternity thought I was crazy too. And that's when I got the term hippie Mark, which eventually evolved into people calling me mystic Mark. And, uh and yeah, a lot of the jobs I had gotten since that time in my life came from friends that I had in the, um, fraternity, you know, one job at the bakery that I talk a lot about came from, I mean, that's how it works out. And it's so looked down upon right like well
1: and and all these people in power structures and things like that but really
0: really you you'd be going really far out of your way calling it a fraternity as much as i respect the fraternity it's really more of a, a drinking club you know again this animal house you know, so three
1: lodges are the same though i'm just right, gonna tell you
0: right and and you know i only bring that up to add to the synchronicity of it because this bakery that my buddy good friend of mine who was on my podcast for a while um He was the manager at this place and got me a job as a delivery driver again. Oh, perfect, I'm a delivery driver again. I was head over heels, so happy wake up in the morning, load up my van with bread, listen to podcasts and do some deliveries and uh, smoke a little weed. Sorry, Andrea, if you're listening to this, but I was smoking weed up in your van and, uh, <laughs> and I would deliver bread. And one of the contracts that this bakery had was with the infamous school that we've been talking about so much in this conversation. And I was lucky enough to be able to skirt under the radar as a bread delivery guy and explore parts of the campus that your average conspiracy theorist would just never have access to. So I was in basements. I was in buildings. I was, you know, jumping over fences and going through places. Like it was fun. It was a good, it was a fun time in my life for sure, and it was all, like, early in the morning, too, like, four, 4, 3 in the morning, I'd go and deliver this bread, and, like, you know, snoop around a little bit, so, you know, all of this leads me to a house that resides at 88 Hill House Avenue, so, I'm doing a delivery that I always did on Tuesdays, and it was a weird delivery, okay, I would walk into this building, and the only way I could get in was by jumping over a fence into a little back lot and then going through a door that was perpetually unlocked at that time. And, uh, and I would sc- sort of skirt through this back door and make my way through the building. And, you know, I'm just doing my thing as a normal Tuesday. Well, it happened to be the exact day when, I'm going to look up the exact day, uh, when George H.W. Bush died. And, uh, and obviously as an alumni of Yale, uh, that was, you know, big news on November 30th, 2018. Yeah, yeah. And I'm delivering in this, you know, building that I was always in every Tuesday. And I look down at the newspaper and I see, oh, George H. W. Bush died. Let me look at this. And it says, former resident of 88 hill house avenue the exact building that i'm standing in the exact building that i had been you know pretty much breaking into every tuesday morning and uh and yeah so synchronicity had it that that was george hw bush's house when he lived in new haven well now wait a minute now
1: like did you get to go into the house? Oh, yeah. No, well, go well, we'll oh, good. Go okay. figure. This is perfect because I'm going to tease everybody to this because we're going into the break here again, last break of the night. But you got to, uh, Catalina says in the chat, secret bread delivery guy. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, We'll be right back. We're going to finish this story. I wonder what was inside this guy's house. Was there any weird stuff in the house? Yes. Lighting the Void we live as we head deeper into the night here on we Fringe FM. Our guest is Mark Steves. We've been talking secret societies, weird synchronicities all night. And uh, another thing, uh, delivering pastries, man, to George Bush's house. Now, wait a minute. Like, before we get into what you saw in this guy's house, because we've been talking skull and bones, but before you get into, was it a house, a townhouse? Was it an apartment? I mean, what did this thing look like from the outside?
0: So for people who may never been in New England, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, colonial type uh, building, brick building, pretty big, you know, something that a wealthy person would call a mansion maybe in the in the 19th century, early 20th century. Hill House Avenue is all these sorts of, you know, old mansions that are all now repurposed as Yale buildings. So go figure. George W. Bush's, H.W. Bush's former home is now the economics department building. So, uh, that's interesting, but yeah, it's definitely, um, it's definitely a, uh, a beautiful place. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not a drab home at all. It's, it, it looks nice, but as far as the, you know, this part about breaking in, there's a sort of like sunken, um. Patio, right? That's sort of like behind a fence and some trees, and sort of below the street level. So that's where I would kind of hop down over the fence, and someone might my- have to mention that
1: you know earlier in the story you'd been break you broke into this house already. Right? Yeah,
0: Le- legally I was allowed to break in, but it was just you know due to the the time frame of the job, nobody was in the building other than the janitor and he couldn't be bothered to let me in because he was vacuuming. So he just basically let me in on this little secret that, uh, you know, you can get in through this back way if you hop down this way. So when I, I would, when I would go through the building, I would end up in the economic department classroom and there would always be some kind of, uh, funny equations on the board. So I would write like Sasquatch is real or something wild and <laughs> give myself a little chuckle and, uh, and yeah, honestly, as far as like the weirdness of the building, they're really, I mean, I can't say much about what it looked like when the bushes lived there because obviously they repurposed it. but there were some odd things about like the bathroom um, you know, was the- there any Egyptian stuff,
1: Sumerian stuff in the house, stuff like that. So see any of that.
0: So what's interesting is one of the things Amos pointed out when he was teaching me some of these symbols was a type of window that's common in certain buildings, at least in this area, is sort of a globe-shaped window with, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, longitude and latitude lines going across it. It's sort of uh-huh. maybe like a nod at globalism. At least this was Amos's theory. And uh, go figure, H.W. Bush's house has that exact type of window right in the front. Um, and, yeah, it's. De- I mean, it's definitely like a... No house to bat an eye at. It's a pretty impressive house, but uh, but there are very strange buildings not too far away from this house. One of them is sort of like a repurposed secret society building that now, if I'm not mistaken, is like a Chinese student relations building, something to that effect, which again, uh, due to the proximity and... and H.W. Bush's nature and and what he was doing in China, I think it's interesting to note how well China's represented at Yale. Uh, It doesn't seem like that's an accident, especially considering the the Russell Trust and their history with China. But, yeah, man, I mean, as far as weird stuff inside of the building, uh, you know, it's a repurposed 18th century building, so there were some weird things. Uh, It was very ornate. Uh, unfortunately I was never, na- never able to make it upstairs, but, uh, you know, things like a old switchboard, the type of thing you would see in like a very old, um, phone operator building, there was still one of those, uh, which I imagine with a guy like Bush being as wealthy as he probably was, he could afford some pretty advanced tel- telephone technology uh, but it it was kind of encased in glass like it wasn't something that anybody was currently using it just seemed like it was there for lack of a better explanation as a display highlighting what the building maybe used to have in it Um, but no outside of that there really wasn't anything strange there was a garage which uh, again is not typical (laughs) for buildings uh, built in that time but uh, but you know again it was repurposed so now really the strangest stuff came from being inside of the um, being inside of the business building um, where they teach it's like this big glass building it's right across the street from the Peabody Museum and why it was interesting was because I noticed that the tunnel system <laughs> when I was delivering in this building one time went uh, outside of the sort of skim, like the imprint of the building. Like if you're looking from bird's eye view, these tunnels were going under the street into other buildings. So like the Peabody museum and all these other places are possibly connected through this underground tunnel network. Uh, maybe even the Bush home is connected to this tunnel network, but
1: yeah, well, I think the one other, the biggest Or strangest thing at all of it would be, the synchronicities I would that you're having every since you started this journey. Well, it's a really weird thing. I don't know if it's be. I wonder if it's because maybe our conscious, maybe it's psychological. Maybe our consciousness starts focusing on all these things, but it just doesn't seem that way because a lot of weird things start happening. You know.
0: Mm. Well, you know, I was just having a conversation with Nathan Isaac, and the way he explained it was like you know you learn about these stories and then at some point the lines get blurred and you become a part of the story like what are the odds that I would be in the building the day that George H.W. Bush died like the the former home that he lived in uh which you know is right next to some strange stuff and it's on a hill which what I learned recently this past summer from a researcher Ross Ben is that Whenever you see a red door church, that's a good indication that there was some sort of bloody uh, event that took place in that area, whether it was like a sacrificial site or the place of a battleground. Uh, And there are a lot of red door churches in New Haven and specifically on the hill going up, hence the name of the street Hill House, where um, George H.W. Bush lived hill house Ave goes up this hill that from what i've learned was a mound so not the sort of earthen mound that you have in the midwest but more of like a you know this is a significant place to us type mound uh that people would go to and kind of uh be able to see far and wide obviously before it was developed to the point that it is but what's interesting about new haven from like a Um, biological geographical perspective is we're a part of this really ancient crop of land that used to be a part of africa and you can see that with the red stone sort of mountains that are on either side of the city of new haven one of the uh mountains they're not quite that big to be called mountains but uh has a soldiers and sailors monument which I've learned recently has something to do with the whole Tartaria World's Fair thing. And then on the western side, uh, the western mountain was where the regicide um, patriots fled. The regicide judges who were convicted and a part of the killing of the king during, you know, the colonial times. And they fled to New Haven and hid on this rock. It's like this big, big rock that's kind of like it looks like at one point it was like thrown from the sky and landed on this other rock. And it kind of makes a poor excuse for a cave. And this is where these guys allegedly were hiding. Um, But what I've found recently is that a lot of these rock uh, structures, especially in this area, were sacred to the native Americans. And I think what you find with the practice of keeping skulls is Skull and Bones is taking part in an ancient process of reclaiming the magical rights to a landscape. And you do that by um, sort of co-opting the bloodlines and taking the reins of whatever magical traditions that took place in that area. And you see that with the Native Americans. You know, you have groups like the, uh, you know, Red Man Patriots or something or other. The, like, they were part of the, the Boston Tea Party. Forgive me for screwing that name up, but there's a weird, like, secret society that was a part of the Boston Tea Party and the founding of this country, and their secret society was named, like, the Red Man Association, you know, and they were, like, something like that, where they were basically pretending to be Native American chiefs uh, and using... And I think that's even a part of the Paul Revere thing where they were wearing headdresses and whatnot, right? You have these patriots uh, dressing up as... Native Americans. But yeah, a lot of weird things going on. I think New Haven is an epicenter for these things. And it, you know, a lot of people don't know that New Haven used to be a colony in and of itself, just like Massachusetts and Connecticut uh, were both colonies. Connecticut's colony was centered up in the capital, Hartford, Connecticut. But New Haven colony had Stretches of land as far south as Philadelphia, which we know (laughs) Philadelphia is a hotbed for secret society activity as well. And they also had um, portions of what is now Long Island where Crowley and Tesla both made some waves doing some occult activity and uh, parts of what are now like, you know, the rich, rich western side or eastern side of the Hudson River. In New York, that used to be Connecticut. Connecticut used to go all the way out to as far as, like, the 70th something um, into Pennsylvania. Like, as far west as Pennsylvania's border is, Connecticut used to own a strip of land that far west. So it's, it's interesting to see, like, the things that you can turn up when you look at the history. You know, I found out that these... Connecticut, um, you know, refugees because of what was going on in the colony at that time. They had fled to a place in Pennsylvania that I synchronistically ended up in, uh, because Michael Wan was like, "Hey, man, you should go check out this place in uh, in Scranton." And I get down there, and the first sign I see is Connecticut Colony, <laughs> group of uh Connecticut.
1: That, that area has like a, a lot of weird secret society. That whole area there does. I mean, the Molly Maguires is from Pennsylvania. Never even heard of the Molly Maguires. You heard of them before? No, No, let's
0: look them up. Molly
1: Maguires. I can tell you in the 1870s, there were these foremen of the coal mines in Pennsylvania that were assassinated. And uh, they, they say that members of the secret society called the Molly Maguires, which was an organization with Irish origins brought to the United States. They got its name because members used women's clothing as a disguise while allegedly carrying out illegal acts, which included arson and death threats. But uh, they were finally undone by the Pinkerton Detective Agency. I, I mean, if you look into the history of like that area, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and the surrounding areas that, you know, Michael Wan talks about, there's a lot of weird stuff that ha- that's happened.
0: Delaware Industrial. where our, our, uh, our president has spent a lot of time. He's actually from Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is also another very strange place, but yeah, you know, all of this is extremely inspiring, you know, talking to Michael Juan as much as I have. And that's what I've kind of, why I've set out to look into Connecticut in a deeper way. And, um, You know, we found a lot. I actually went to a place in Moodus, Connecticut, where there are legends of um, all sorts of weird stuff. And I remember having this really strange feeling there. And uh, and I was really worried. And it's called Makamoodis State Park in Connecticut. And then I go back there very recently with my girlfriend, Tara. And we had sort of a good time, but we ended up seeing this big, big black snake, which Synchronicity had it. Uh, synced up with a couple things in that time. But we also ended up hearing the Makamudas noises, which inspired uh, one of H.P. Lovecraft's novels. Um, but it's also uh, an Indian legend that goes back very long that there's an angry god who lives under the ground in Moodus, Connecticut, and uh, and he needs to be satisfied with certain offerings. And for the longest time, there were groups of people living in this world, particularly in this continent, who followed those old ways of living and honored those, for lack of a better word, tutelary spirits and elementals and satisfied them with offerings. And I think the reason why we see so many weird hauntings in Connecticut, and we're so famous, I mean, Amityville, you have, uh, you know, the very famous Warren uh, couple that was, you know, pretty much the top-notch ghost hunters. Uh, All in Connecticut. And I think that's because when the Native Americans left this place, there was no one here to take up the reins. Um, Maybe the secret societies have done it in secret. That's all alleged and speculation on my part, but uh, and others too. But yeah, I think that could be maybe possibly a cause for things like the Bridgewater Triangle phenomena, you know, not too far from Connecticut. You have stories of creatures like the Pukwaji, and you have, you know, swamp ape type Sasquatch sightings. You have, of course, UFO sightings and all sorts of weird activity with MIT and, and even the, you know, men in black. But yeah, I think there's something, whether it's the Makamudas spirit that's described as like a sort of uh, dressed in, in shiny clothing and, And lives in this sort of crystal palace. I think these beings were not regarded as evil the same way we might think of them now back then. I think the Native Americans just had a very deep, deep respect that wasn't conveyed to the puritanical people who came over and and occupied the land after them because they just saw everything that they didn't understand as the devil. And that's why you have all these places around Connecticut like Devil's Hop Yard and the Devil's This, the Devil's That, because you know all these places that the Native Americans would spend time doing their ceremonies in, then colonialists would come by, see that stuff going on, and then name those places Devil This, Devil That. I mean, there's the Devil's Dam, there's the Devil's Den. There's the Devil's Chair. There's
1: the, We have a Devil's right. Chair down here. Oh right?
0: yeah, and then I in
1: do the South too. And it freaks people out. Oh now. yeah. Oh, but I'm, yeah. what I'm wondering though is it like think about the mentality of let, let's start a secret society, right? And lots of them start in colleges, right? So Skull and Bones is obviously like Yale. Then there's the Flat Hat Club of the College of William and Mary, then the Quill and Dagger at Cornell. Right. Uh, the Christian. Just Lane Maxwell society was part in Washington the, and Lee.
0: Just Lane uh, Maxwell was, the was Society part of, that one. of
1: Virginia. Now think about the area that I'm talking about, right? The England type area. Mm. Uh, the Euclidean Society in New York University, the Order of the Gimguls, North Carolina, Wolf's Head at Yale, the Stewards in Georgetown, and the Order of the Bull's Blood at Rutgers. So this is, I think maybe there's something that having to do with that age of maybe it's just the college life or, or I don't know, when people get into this education mindset, there's always some kind of psychological thing. It's like, let's start a secret group of people.
0: Well, and, I you mean, know. you look at the the whole framework in which our college society is built. It's within this Greek, you know, mystery school type thing with the quadrivium and the, you know, trivium. And and yeah. obviously the mystery schools are a part of that trinity. And, um, and I think that that's kind of yeah, it's just part and parcel. We've always had these groups in our society, you know, better than I do. You've been a part of, uh, at least a group, not the groups that we're talking about tonight, but you know, it's just a function of human society to have these hierarchies and these groups and these, uh, sort of, uh, again, rites of passage, to take it back to the Native Americans. I mean, Native Americans, I hate to sound like I'm, you know, giving them, like, this uh, sort of pedestal to stand on, even though they might deserve it in a lot of ways. You know, there's there were secret societies among the Native Americans. I mean, there were there were just, like, a lot of bad hombres, we'll call them, who, uh, who did things that, uh, you know, even the colonists did, so... I'm not going
1: to start tribal nature, right? Yeah. I'm not like a apologist. Like, bike you know? week here, right? Back mm-hmm. in the day, the outlaws and the pagans used to run this place. right? And uh, it makes you wonder. It just makes you wonder the psychology of it all. I wonder if people, if we're just tribal in nature, you know what I mean? Like maybe we are, maybe we are. Look at podcast networks, like the network you grew with all media United. Look how big that is. Or the Fringe FM's radio station. We got our own kind of family here. I just think that people get a little freaked out by societies uh, when I think we're just tribal in nature, right? But I don't know, Skull and Bones or the Builder let's say the Bilderberg Group, people like that. That's something to worry about for sure, I think.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, what's his name? is the guy to talk to on, uh, Dan Estelin is the guy to talk to on, uh, Bilderberg. He, he's, uh, rubbed shoulders with those guys, but yeah, you know, I think it's, it's definitely like a big onion with many layers and Connecticut being the second highest capita, you know, wealth income place in, uh, the United States, you're going to find a lot of prominent people, a lot of wealthy people. A lot of the colleges you just named are primarily in the East Coast. Uh, There's a huge concentration of wealth there and it's, you know, no accident. This is where people got their roots in first when this colonial, uh, you know, movement started. So yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm only really just beginning to uh, go into the Connecticut mystery, but The New Haven stuff is pretty close to my story, and that's why I'm excited to give this like tour on March 22nd at uh, 2 p.m. I'm going to have everybody meet at a cafe called the Book Trader Cafe. If you're in Connecticut and you're listening to this right now and you're free on the 22nd, come down. It's going to be a free tour, and we're just going to look at all the symbolism on the buildings because that's one thing, like you can go and look at a picture of the tomb all you want, I just type it in right now and Google search it. But what you won't see through a Google search are the myriad of other weird symbols across the building fronts of all of these different buildings across Yale's campus. And we're going to snake our way through New Haven on this very important day, 3 2022 to be an acupuncture needle in the collective consciousness, and a man who you mentioned synchronistically, Thomas from Paranoid American, is kind enough to send some copies of this comic book that he put together with some help from an artist called Geronimo's Grave, which, funny enough, depicts the exact story I told you about of Prescott Bush stealing the skull from Geronimo's grave and we're going to take that comic book distribute it around New Haven amongst uh our tour while we're on the tour and uh yeah shed some light on some of these things i mean for people who don't know like uh Van morris or yeah is it not it, not Van Morrison the other Morrison from uh, the Doors Jim Morrison sorry um, yeah was famously arrested in New Haven for lewd and lucidious behavior, Uh, and he wrote the song Blood in the Streets of the Town in New Haven, and that all happened at Toad's Place, which, uh, you know, for people who are adept in, in the realms of magic, they know toads are definitely a part of the, you know, occult pastiche in the medieval world, especially toads were considered like, you know, a witch is familiar and we even have certain toad species that actually are psychedelic. So it's no coincidence yep. that this place in New Haven, that's kind of a legendary rock venue is right in the midst, only a block away from Skull and Bones and right in uh, a block away from the Grove Street Cemetery, which right above the entrance, cause you know, every cemetery needs this folks. Um, it says the dead shall be raised. Very interesting I mean, slogan to paste listen, across the top yeah, of I mean, the cemetery. If you guys are in
1: the area, you need to go to... <laughs> You need to go on that tour. We got to get out of here though, Mark. Thanks for uh, coming on. My family thinks I'm crazy.com. Yeah. All media United as well. And people can Again, but to, Thanks. Thanks for coming on.
0: Real quick. people can go to the hiresidemeetups.com and check out the details and RSVP. If they want to come to that event in new Haven, higher side has the, the info on that. Thanks to Greg for putting that together. And yeah, check me out. My family thinks I'm crazy.com. Joe. Thank you so much for being here. Give me an opportunity uh, let me talk to your audience and share a story that's pretty close to how I got into this and why I do the podcast and all that good stuff.
1: You got it, brother. We'll see you guys tomorrow night. Sweet dreams.
0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning into this modular, modulated episode of the My Family Thinks i Crazy podcast. It's actually my latest appearance on Lighting the Void. I had a guest lined up for today, and we ended up getting delayed and having a conversation about something else entirely. So I was not able to put a proper Wednesday episode out today. So instead, I'm going to put the Friday Swapcast out today, and the Wednesday episode will come out this Friday. So thank you for being here. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Lighting the Void featuring me talking about Skull and Bones. Um, Jay Hennehan Tara, and I are working on a secret project relating to that subject, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but as far as the podcast is going, folks, I just want to give a big thank you to everyone who signed up on Patreon, to everyone who supported us. Tara and I recently moved into a new place and you know, that comes with its own set of challenges Trials, tribulations, setting things up Getting organized, getting reorganized So, so many things have gone on in the past two weeks that I have been behind the normal schedule but I will never go a day without giving you something we release episodes every monday and wednesday without fail okay because i know that my family thinks i'm crazy podcast audience i know you well i know you like tinfoil hat so here's what you do you listen to my family thinks i'm crazy on monday Listen to Tinfoil Hat on Tuesday, listen to another episode of My Family Thinks I'm Crazy on Wednesday, and then you listen to another episode of Tinfoil Hat on Thursday or Friday whenever Johnny or Sam decide to put it out. Isn't that pretty fucking cool? And then sometimes when I'm super organized, I put out three or even four episodes in a week. So if you respect the hustle, if you respect the grind, help me pay rent, sign up for the Patreon. Patreon send us a one-time donation buy yourself some merch we have new stickers reptilians exist let the world know with our new Illuminati confirmed reptilian exist stickers oh and speaking of Illuminati confirmed Juan Chris and I have done about 16 episodes of Illuminati confirmed only eight of them are free the other eight are on my patreon they're also on Juan's patreon so if you want to get that bonus content Please sign up, show us some love on Patreon, and get a spirit animal name. We give out spirit animal names once a month. Everybody who's a patron gets a spirit animal name, and who knows? Tara has been studying something called the Dream Spell Calendar. Maybe we can work that into the Patreon meetings as well, and give you guys uh, like a month reading. Everybody who shows up, sort of, uh, oh... We'll see how we do it. It's not going to be live. It'll be pre-recorded. So maybe we'll give you like a monthly forecast at the beginning of the month. And I'll dole out the spirit animal names for the new patrons. Yada, yada, yada. We got Rockfin. We got Telegram. We got merch. We're just soaring, folks. So get in while the getting's good. This podcast is rocking and rolling to the top of the charts. Top ranked. We were in the top 30. Consistently, since David Ike's been on the show, a so big shout out to everybody who's joined us since Ike being here. I think a lot of people gravitated towards the show after that, and I appreciate all the newcomers. I wonder if Michael Hoffman, equally a legend. I wonder if Michael Hoffman has his own group of people that follow him, too. Either way, thank you for being here. We'll see you Friday. I promise I'll have a a proper interview with Al from Forum Borealis. Peace. Have a great moment, wherever you are, the now.